So all over the world this week, Christians are focusing on the persecuted church. And uh, as I said in announcements, could you please come Wednesday? We want to pray for missions. We want to pray for the persecuted church. Wait until after this message, though, before you decide, okay? There are two ministries in America that monitor Christian persecution. One is Voice of the Martyrs. The other is um, called Open Doors. Now, Open Doors, for 25 years, has been watching the persecuted church, and they actually rank uh, the top 50 countries where Christians are being persecuted the most. And they put out a report, it's January of every year. So this is from this year, January, speaking of last year, 2016. So their conclusion is this. In 25 years of chronicling and ranking, Open Doors researchers identified 2016 as the worst year yet. Uh, when it comes to killing and persecuting Christians all over the world. So we are actually in a phase of the worst persecution of Christians in the history of the world. Right? Um, Here's some statistics. Approximately 215 million Christians experience high, very high, or extreme persecution. So the, um, the greenish color here. Is that yellow or green? Green. Gold. Okay. It's kind of a slimy green, right? So um, that's high persecution. And then the brown would be very high. And then the red would be extreme. And that's, of course, the the Middle Eastern, uh, mainly Muslim countries. And then number one is North Korea over here. Um, now, they didn't even put a whole map of North America um, or our side of the world. They just put a little cutout here. And Mexico is 41 and Colombia is 50. Um, a lot of that is drug cartel stuff. But um, United States, most of South America, Canada, uh, we're, we don't have, we're not, we didn't even make the color chart. All right. Um, North Korea remains the most dangerous place to be a Christian. That's 14 years straight. Islamic extremism remains the global dominant driver of persecution. So it's responsible for 35 of the 50 countries on the 2017 list. So number one is North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran. Um, Today, we're going to focus on One story from Somalia, okay? You know, uh, when you talk about statistics, 215 million Christians being persecuted or living in countries where there's persecution, those are just numbers. Um, But I think if we zero in on a real story, it might give us a real picture of what some people go through. So there is a book by Tom Doyle called Killing Christians, and it's... I think six or seven chapters, and in each chapter, there's a story of a very real persecuted Christian. And by the way, the most dramatic one is in chapter one, 
And you know how when you go on Amazon, they say, would you like a sample of the book? And you can get a free sample. You can download chapter one for free if you want uh, to read this story. But I want to take you to Somalia, which is on the far eastern side of Africa. Okay, Somalia uh, is entirely Muslim. Notice it it uh, borders Kenya right here. That's important as I tell the story. There's uh, a story about a young Muslim by the name of Azam. And he was born into a Muslim family. And the father is a warlord. In other words, he has his little fiefdom, fiefdom of, uh, of people. And he's also a Somalian pirate. Um, I actually think this is from that movie, Captain Phillips, is it? Yeah. Um, poor Tom Hanks. You know, first he's, he's stranded on an island and cast away for four years, and then he dies in World War II as Private Ryan. Now he's a captain. He gets kidnapped by Somalian pirates. But uh, Azam would have been one of these guys. He's still alive today, by the way, I believe. Um, and his father is the chief pirate, really. Now, the author of the book, Tom Doyle, talks a lot about Muslims having dreams about Jesus. I don't know what you think about that, and there's controversy. Is Jesus really appearing to people in dreams? But this Azam claims to have had seven dreams about Jesus. So he goes to talk to his Muslim imam, his, pa- his pastor, uh, about these dreams. <clears throat> and as he's talking about Jesus, the imam hauls off and backhands him so hard, he flies across the room. And, it's, uh, and so I'll, I'll do some quoting from the book. The blow from the village imam hurled Azam into, onto his back in a pile of shoes left by the faithful at the mosque entrance. The cleric glared fire at the dazed inquirer on the floor. Friday prayers occupied the throngs inside the sacred building, and no one noticed the semi-conscious man lying among their shoes. So, message loud and clear, you don't talk about Jesus around here. So he goes home, and he lives in this dingy little home. His mother is there. He goes into his bedroom, and he sees a blood-drenched cross on his bed. It's another vision. And he calls his mother in and he says, Mom, do you see that cross? Now his younger brother also comes in the room. And the author says this, Though two years younger than Azam, Haj was already a powerful young man. He grabbed Azam's shirt and threw him to the floor. With his bare foot, he kicked Azam in the face. Haj sneered at his spiritually deviant brother and huffed as he left the room. He would find their father and tell him everything. Alone with his mother, Azam pleaded, Mother, Jesus was here again. You believe me, don't you? You have to. Why would I make this up? Don't you hear him? Rawa Mubarak looked at her oldest child calmly in the eye. Leave, son, and don't come back. Because if... The father finds out 
he's talking about Jesus, he is in big trouble. So he runs 25 miles away to another village where he thinks he's safe for several weeks. And um, <laughs> one of those days, um, he, he thinks he's safe, but his father, who's a warlord, knows everything that's going on. And a delivery man says, package for Azam Mubarak. And he delivers a package. And Azam opens the box. And in the box, a big plastic bag with bloody body parts of his mother. There's a picture on top of the plastic bag of two men right before they behead the mother. He knows these two men because they're, uh, they're pirates with him. Their names, um, Mahdi and Yasin. Remember those names, Mahdi and Yasin. Okay. At that moment, he becomes f- a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. He realizes, I, I am in this thing. So he ends up going to another village 10 miles south of Mogadishu. Remember Black Hawk Down, Mogadishu? 10 miles south. That's 10 hours from Kenya. He can't keep his mouth shut about Jesus. And people become followers of Christ. And they meet secretly. This was the second meeting of Somali believers in the village 10 miles south of Mogadishu. Until two months earlier, the population had been 100% Muslim. So now they're having their second meeting. After the first meeting, the Jesus followers had paid a staggering price. Azam survived, but six were executed the week after they met. They had been dragged from their mud and dung homes in the middle of the night and decapitated. The four gone sentences were announced and carried out so the whole village could hear each gruesome killing. It was meant to end any further conversations. Jesus was not welcome here. So imagine a church like Valley Brook has our first service and the next, between that week and the next week, um, half of you are beheaded. Would the rest of you show up for the next week? They did. Um, So Azam shares some encouraging words with them. And he says, I'll be leaving the country tomorrow. And um, he explains this. He paused and scanned the group. My trip will take about a week, maybe more. When I come back, each of you will have a small copy of the scriptures, small enough to hide easily. We must arm ourselves with the word. You'll memorize as much as you can and then pass the Bibles along to others who are also waiting for them. We must get stronger because our battle is only going to get worse, much worse. Jabbar looked sadly at Azam. You'll be dead before you reach the border, he whispered. Maybe, Jabbar, but I have a plan. Now, here's his plan. Um, There was a truck that would carry caskets full of dead bodies from 
Somalia to Kenya. His plan was to hide in one of the caskets with the dead body and travel 10 hours to Kenya where he would meet up with some Christians who would give um, some tattered Bibles to him and then he would get back in another coffin and come back. And he successfully did that. There were times when some of the, and a number of, of Somalians <clears throat> do this. That's their, that's their Bible uh, distribution plan. A number of Somalians died because when you're in a coffin with a dead body, it can kill you. <clears throat> so he gets the Bibles to his group. And now we take you to a different scene. Two men strolled arrogantly down the center of the village road, preoccupied over boasting about exploits with their latest girlfriends. They didn't notice a third man step silently from between two houses and into the road a dozen yards ahead of them. Their banter stopped abruptly as Mahdi and Yasin recognized the form in their path. These are the two guys who killed his mother. They were not at all happy to see Azam Mubarak again. I know what you did to my mother. Now, what would you do to these two guys? Azam, we had to. We didn't want to do it, but your father ordered us and threatened us to. As he spoke, Mahdi's right hand moved slowly around his back, where his knife was. I know all about my father. Azam stared at the two murderers. I haven't come to harm you, he paused for effect. I've come to forgive you. Azam continued, you need to know that I love you and have prayed for both of you ever since I saw your picture with my mother. Jesus filled my heart with compassion for you. You need him just like I did. He can forgive murderers. His love is greater than anything you've done. He met with them a number of times, shared the gospel with them. And at the next meeting of the little church, the group is gathered and in walks Azam, and behind him, Mahdi and Yasin are with him. And the group is terrified because they know all about this. And Azam says, Mahdi and Yasin are part of the family now, they're forgiven. And they become part of the church. Now, what about his mother? So, Mahdi says this. Azam knew something didn't add up until Yasin and I told him more about his mother's death. Azam had hoped deep in his heart something about his mother that he just had to know. And he was right. As we killed her, her last words were, Jesus, Jesus, I love you. So she was a believer, and that's why she sent him away. Okay? So this is what life and church is like for Christians in Somalia. It's even worse in North Korea. Now, um, typically, we Americans think that we can teach um, those on the other side of the world things about Christianity. 
I mean, after all, we know Greek and we have study Bibles and commentaries and online resources. So we should go teach them. But I actually think we can learn something from these persecuted Christians. So I'm going to give you three lessons we can learn from the persecuted church. Amazingly, they all begin with the same letter. Okay? Three things. First thing that they can teach us is perspective. They can give us big picture perspective. Uh, John Piper speaks of the need for Christians to adopt a wartime perspective or mentality on the Christian life. Because so many American Christians, we not only have a peacetime perspective, maybe even a vacation time perspective. In fact, the prosperity gospel basically says Jesus' job is to give you a more comfortable, healthy, wealthy lifestyle. Right? And then there's, I guess I call it the little church on the, on the prairie gospel. Christ died to give you just a quaint, comfortable lifestyle. Is that really the message of the gospel? He died to give you a quaint life? Um, we read from Revelation earlier. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 9. It's a very interesting thing going on in the book of Revelation. First, there's the, the seal judgments. And then there's the trumpet judgments. And then there's the bowl judgments, which are the final judgments. But the trumpet judgments, the fifth one says this. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he, so now the star is a he. So this is a, a being. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So hell is opened up, smoke and locusts come out, and they're told to sting like scorpions, only unbelievers. Okay, And then if you skip to verse 11, it says this. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Who is this? Satan, right? Satan falls from heaven, opens the pit of hell, and out comes uh, a vast amount of demons. Now, there's lots of different interpretations. Some people say, those are stinger helicopters. Here's, the, here's a simple ESV study note. ESV study note says this. This vision shows the increase of demonic activity, plunging rebellious humans into desperation as the era of God's patient restraint draws 
to a close. In other words, it's going to get really bad. And though this world with devils filled, that it, it, it's going to increase. Right? I just heard a statistic in the 1980s. There were three suicide bombings a year. In the 1990s, it increased to one a month. In the early 2000s, it was one a week. Today, it's one a day. People willing to commit suicide, as long as they can take hundreds of people with them. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. While much of of the gruesome activity of radical Islam, the beheadings and the torture and the suicide bombings, uh, while it's demonically influenced, don't limit this simply to radical Islam. Okay? You know, for example, the, the Las Vegas shooter. There was no tie that we know of to radical Islam. And, and because we live in a Western world, uh, everybody wants to know, what's the explanation? Was it radical Islam? Was he a white supremacist? Was it mental illness? What about demonic? What about the tie of demon infestation all over the world? Now, don't... Don't think the, de- the demonic onslaught is limited simply to physical violence. The demons also spread false worldviews. Right? In Second um, Corinthians 10, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are, what are demonic strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, many times this verse gets quoted to say, we as Christians need to take every thought captive, which is a, it's a good application. We are to submit all of our thoughts to biblical truth. Okay, But in the context here, this isn't just talking about taking your own thoughts captive. It's talking about defeating the arguments, the false worldviews all around us. Right? So as things get worse and worse, you need to be more and more equipped to spot unbiblical world thinking. Okay, so here's just a simple question as we, as we learn from the persecuted church. Do you know you're in a war? Do you view the Christian life as a war? And what then are you doing to train and prepare? I think in the West we've so presented Christianity and we've built churches as entertainment centers, 
and social clubs. And it, it, it's all about comfort. Do you see that we are in a war? And are you training for the war? Right? Second thing we learn. The first thing uh, is, is the perspective. Second thing, priorities. If you have a wartime mentality, you, you, you whittle things down to the top priorities. What, what is their top priority? That's well, basically two things. One, gathering to hear the word. Two, evangelizing the lost. You know, when it comes to evangelism, even in the midst of beheadings, their little group grows. Six of them were beheaded after their first meeting, but they can't help but keep talking about Jesus. So let me ask you a question. When's the last time you led someone to the Lord? Or invited them to church? You know, you've heard the phrase, when fishermen don't fish, they fight. When Christians aren't busy evangelizing, you know what they do? Nitpick. Right? And they, they gather and they risk their lives to be with one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to study the word. They hide in coffins so they can get a copy of the Bible. Right? You know, the other thing I think of is under persecution, Christians don't have time for pettiness. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a case study. Um, the pastor was in a church, and the church was having some kind of a celebration, and they were planning a banquet. And then on the, co- the committee, they said, well, let's, let's decorate the tables with these tablecloths, and then um, let's, have, uh, let's talk about having centerpieces. And one woman wanted to have like a little fine china centerpiece. And another guy said, no, it's about growth. Let's put a little seedling in a paper cup. And these two had a fight over what to do about the centerpiece. And the pastor came up with the solution and he had to run back and forth and these two were fighting over the centerpieces. And uh, his solution was, let's put the little seedling in the fine china. And then you read the whole case study and at the end it says, both of them eventually left the church. I imagine if you told that story to this little church in Somalia, they would react by saying, and you think we have demon problems. I think pettiness is a demon problem. It's just dividing the body. It's a waste of time. Um, But when we're not evangelizing, what do we do? Bicker, right? So there's, there's uh, perspective, priority. Last thing, power. What ultimately brought Mahdi and Yasin to Christ? An unexplainable supernatural love. 
that has no explanation other than God. You don't fake that kind of love. You don't work it up with your human power. It's supernatural. In the meeting, it says, Mahdi broke the silence in my religion. There was no certainty of forgiveness, either from God or each other. When Yasin and I saw Azam on the, lo- on the road last week, I reached for my knife, assuming I would need to defend myself. There would be no other reason for him to confront us other than to avenge his mother's death and kill us, both to honor her. But when Azam spoke, his words paralyzed both of us. We could not believe what we were hearing. His words of forgiveness, I had never heard anything like it. Mahdi paused and looked at the floor. Then eyeing the group, he continued, I've longed for words like this often during my life. For Azam to forgive murderers like us and to tell us that he loved us. So, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, um, on Wednesday nights, and I wish I could have seen more of you there, we studied the Ten Commandments. And what we talked about was the purpose God gives his law. And one purpose, one reason God gives his law, is to convict us of our sin, to show us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. Right? Now, unfortunately, many Christians stop there. Boy, we should have no other gods before me, and I wonder if TV is my God or money is my God. Um, We should honor our parents. I haven't always honored my parents. Boy, I feel bad. Um, Commandment like this, I should love my my neighbor, love my enemy, actually. I can't, I, I can't do that. I need a Savior. So yes, the purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. But a, a, another purpose of the law is for us to actually, as Christians, live out. And what these Somalian Christians show us is that it's possible, not in their own strength, but with supernatural strength to actually love and forgive the murderers of his own mother. Let me end with this. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone, look at this, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this verse is usually quoted because it's about apologetics. Uh, being prepared to make a, a uh, apologia, a, a apologetic 
so, so we quote this verse and here, study all these apologetic arguments. That's great. But notice the assumption. The assumption is that our lives are so supernaturally different that people come up to us and ask us the reason for the hope that's in us. In other words, uh, the, the foundation that needs to be there are lives that are so radically supernatural that people go, what is going on with you? You're not like the rest of the people at work. You're not like the bickering people in my family. There's something different about you. And I know it has to do with Jesus. So can you answer this question I have? So question, do we live such supernatural lives that people are approaching us? Because they are over there. Right? So I didn't really plan on this. But I think it would be good for us to close this message with a time of prayer where uh, we all, not just me pray, but if, if you could pray too, pray for the persecuted church that, in fact, over here, 10 ways to pray, um, okay. Let me. that they would sense his presence, experience God's comfort, See God's God open doors to evangelism. Boldly share the gospel. Forgive and love their persecutors. Know we're praying for them. Be granted wisdom in covert ministries like smuggling Bibles in coffins. Remain joyful amid suffering. Mature in their faith. Be rooted in God's word. And then I think we could pray for ourselves that we would learn the lesson of perspective and priorities, and power. Lord, as we draw closer to your return, um, we understand that Satan is not happy and that um, the demonic onslaught will increase. So Lord, prepare us for the battles. May we love your word. May we study it and know it and be able to apply it. And then, Lord, give us a passion to get the word out. Lord, even raise up missionaries to go to dangerous places. Lord, thank you for the example of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have not turned the gospel into a prosperity gospel or a comfort gospel, but are willing to to literally die uh, to spread the word. So Lord, do a work in our hearts. Bless them, keep them, use them to keep spreading the word. And Lord, we pray against uh, the evils of of radical Islamists, who will go so far as to behead Christians. Lord, may your gospel win. May Jesus be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.